Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So the last time we finished up 1 Corinthians 16, that was the end of the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And today we're going to start his second letter to the Corinthians. Now, while you're getting your Bibles and opening up to 2 Corinthians 1, let me just give you basically an order of events. 1 Corinthians was written, there were problems, a lot of problems in the Corinthian church. And then uh, after that, Paul made a painful visit, which we're going to cover. He speaks about that. It was difficult. He had to uh, discipline them. Uh, it was, it was um, a tenuous, it was a difficult time between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians. They were doing a lot of things that were pretty, pretty wrong. And then we had a severe letter that he speaks about that he sent to the Corinthian church. Uh, and then after that, Titus comes back from Corinth and gives a report to the Apostle Paul. They meet up in Macedonia. And he basically says that it's a mixed report. There is repentance, but there's also, you know, still disobedience and still problems in that church. And then, of course, 2 Corinthians was written from Paul to the Corinthians. So just so you have a, a, an understanding of what's going on here in the order of events, 2 Corinthians was written, number one, to praise those who are repentant and turn their lives around, to encourage the rest of them in the church to receive the repentant brothers and sisters back into the fold and to you know, not hold it against them, um, to work out some of the lingering problems, and sadly, to defend his actions. The Apostle Paul was put on the defense, and we're going to cover some of that, especially today, where allegations were made. And a lot of times, you know, if you're a leader or a pastor or certainly the Apostle, allegations could be made, and for the most part, you want to ignore them because you can't put out every little fire. But some of them, if they have the uh, opportunity to harm the, the weaker believers in the church, well, now Paul had to deal with that. So we see him dealing with that. You've heard the expression, the best defense is a good offense. Whether you're playing sports, you can't score a goal unless you're offensive. You can't just play defense. Or even in a debate, you see the political debates. One of the candidates, they purposely, they throw out these allegations. And they may be false, but it puts the, their opponent, it gives them a hard time because now they have to work defense to try to explain that allegation. They just can't let it go. And we'll see that here. So Paul wrote 2 Corinthians from Macedonia, which we understand is northern Greece in AD 56. And it does appear that he made at least three trips to Corinth. And on his last trip, he wrote the book of Romans. Scholars have some different theories. They look at 2 Corinthians and there's almost a shift in thought at some point. And, um, you know, if you just listen to the commentaries, they talk about maybe three or four letters were written. And some of the, what we're reading now is part of another letter. But I, I was bored reading it, so I'm not going to go through all the theories with you. The bottom line is God gave us what we needed to understand. He gave us what we needed to edify ourselves. And the Corinthian church has been long gone. But Christians for thousands of years have been benefiting off these Corinthian letters. So we're going to jump in. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. 
Now, if we're afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Now, this is something we won't see in the prosperity gospel, and I say that in quotes. There are those that I know that can go to a church for 20 or 30 years where they only preach, God wants you to be happy all the time, he wants you to be rich, he wants everything to go well in your life. And they gerrymander themselves around these scriptures or they try to explain them away, right? Now that's not reality. And it's also not biblical. We see words like suffering and trouble and tribulation and affliction. But then the flip side of that, we can ask the question, why would God do that? Why would God allow those who stand up and raise their hand? And Jesus said the laborers have always been few. Why would he allow his own people to suffer these things? Because they really just want to serve him and love him. You can find answers in Romans 5, 1 Peter, James, and Hebrews, many others. But I'm going to give you eight basic tenets or uh, ideas or understandings of what trials do in our lives. Now, I'm going to say this. There's different Greek words. There's uh, asthenia for physical infirmity. There's phlipses. There's parasmos. There's a bunch of different Greek words for any type of affliction we may suffer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lump them into all one category and call it trials. You're going to he keep hearing me say the word trials. It could be a bad report from the doctor's office. It could be a financial situation. It could be people coming against you. So I'm going to put that as a big umbrella under trials. So number one, it's a character builder. It's a character builder. This isn't a personal slight. It's just a fact. Those who use, use all their resources to keep themselves from getting into trials or have been pampered or taken care of all their lives and have never been through a hard time, they just don't have a real great depth in character. And that's what the Bible tells us in Romans 5. The second is it's a perspective issue. Whenever we go through trials, what do we think of? Me. Me, 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 me. I'm in this, it stinks. I'm in this, today's another day, I'm still in this. Oh Lord, why don't you get me out of this? We tend to become me-focused, right? But what we have to realize is there's a bigger picture here. We're part of God's plan. It's a colossal plan. It's an eternal plan that's going to last all of eternity. So it's not all about me. It's a perspective issue. And I'm going to show you how sometimes we may have to suffer in order to bring someone else into salvation. And we see that in the Apostle Paul's life, don't we? The third point, it helps us to have compassion and be attentive to another's tragedies. Again, a person who's had it easy all their life may look at someone else suffering and make the faces and say, I'll pray for you, but there's really not, there's, a, there's an empty well, there's not much to draw from. There's not a whole lot of empathy that can be had because they've never been through something that's been hard. I've actually said, at least on more than one occasion, to a person, maybe counseling or a discussion that we've had, I've said, you need a trial. I'm praying for God to bring you a trial because it needs to change you. Now I know at this point you're gonna say, from now on, I'm not asking Pastor Joe to pray for me. <laughs> Pastor Anthony's a lot nicer guy. Don't, 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 no thanks with the trial bit. But on the flip side, we also read of mercy, of comfort, of consolation, of endurance, of salvation, of steadfast hope. This is the jelly that goes with the peanut butter. And we're going to see that we have the hard times and we have the times of reprieve and comfort. And I'm going to bring that together for you a little later in the sermon. The fourth, or verse four, 
He says God comforts us basically and we comfort others. And that brings us to the fourth point. When we fail, God lifts us up. God is the father of mercies and comforts. And if you've been a Christian for some time and you've been through trials, you know that there's a point where God is supernaturally reaching down and lifting you up and you just, something just changes in your perspective, in your countenance, in the way you feel inside. And you know that's just, that's got to be supernatural. God is just lifting me up out of this. And that's a good feeling, right? It's a good feeling. And the fifth verse, he says, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. Now that's interesting. And that brings us to the fifth point. Christ suffered. Jesus said, the servant, which is us, we are not greater than the master, which is him. If I'm going to have trouble, guess what? You're going to have trouble, especially in the form of persecution. If the world didn't like my message and you're carrying it because you're my servants, you're going to get trouble too. So Christ suffered, and the servant is not greater than the master, especially when it comes to espousing God's truth in a world that's hostile to his, to his um, truths, right? The Bible says in 2 Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. That's one of those promises of God that we kind of like don't like to put in a little promise book, but it's there. That's a promise. You know, if we desire to live godly in Christ, we will suffer persecution. But as the afflictions increase, so do the comforts. And that's awesome. Verses 6 and 7, to the Corinthians, he's saying, look, we made a difference in your lives. When we were afflicted, it was to your benefit to bring the gospel, to teach these truths, to uh, be determined, to uh, say what we're going to do, what we're going to say, and to give up our lives basically to serve for the gospel's sake. He says, we suffered for it. We were consoled. And likewise, you will suffer, Corinthians, and God will take care of you as he did to us. You will grow as we did, and you will pass it on as we did. And this is cool because sometimes when we're going through trials, I guess you could say, and I'll just say this flippantly, misery loves company. Sometimes it's nice to know that you're not the only one going through this, right? And listen, I don't have to be a prophet to say this, but I know there's at least a few people sitting here. There's somebody listening on the website. There's somebody listening on the CD. You're going through something, or you've been through something. How do I know that? Because we're human. This is the pilgrimage we call the human experience. And you want to know I'm not alone. Sometimes we have the erroneous notion that when we go through a hard time, that God is mad at us. We feel, did God forget about me? Everybody else seems happy in church. You know, I'm going through this hard time. Is God mad at me? Is God disciplining me? Am I one of the children that he just doesn't like? Am I the runt of the litter? And it's just that we equate those hard times with thinking that. But see, that's what a bad parent does. And some of us have experienced that in life. But God is not a bad parent. I'm here to tell you that God loves you. And the, that's why I'm going through these circumstances, these eight points, to show you that there is a bigger and broader picture here. And I'm also, we're going to see Paul's personal experience in his life, right? You see this balance of sufferings and comfort, sufferings and comfort. It reminds me of the heating and cooling in sword making. Back in those days, everybody had swords. If you had to protect yourself, they didn't have AR-15s or you know, anything like that. They had swords. And what would happen is they would heat up the sword. You've heard this. 
They would heat it up and they would hammer it out. And then they would uh, sometimes fold it, depending on the sword, and then stretch it out, right? And then cool it down. And they would check for problems, right? Then they would heat it up again. And they would keep doing this process, heating and cooling, heating and cooling. But you know what it did to the sword? It changes, this is a fact, metallurgy, it changes the molecular structure inside the sword. It helps it from being brittle. It helps it to become hardened and tempered. And I just thought of that because the sixth point is we go through these hard times because the way it's set up is that we can't grow and strengthen in our faith unless we go through these hard times and then come out the other side of it, you see? And the older that you are and the longer you've been a Christian, you've probably been through more of these, right? You know, in the cartoons, you know, the, the character would draw his sword and he would take it out and it would go, would like be like a wimpy kind of egg noodle and it would, it would be useless to him. And that's not we, what we want in our faith. We're looking for a strong and resolute faith. And that's why we go through these heating and cooling and heating and cooling procedures in our life, right? And sometimes we decide that we're going to do everything in our power not to go through that trial. We miss the point there. Or we go through the trial and we become bitter and we miss the point that God is trying to show us. I'm going to tell you, you know, I prayed about it and I just felt the Lord is leading me here. Um, probably one of the worst times in my life was in 1999, all right? I went through severe panic and anxiety disorder. And I know I've touched on that. And what it does is if you've never had it, because before that I would look at other people that have it and be like, in my mind, what's, what's your problem? Get over it. But until you have it, you can't understand it. You, your heart races, and you, you can't catch your breath. And you, you get pains that go down your arm, and you feel like you're having a heart attack, and you go to the hospital. A lot of emergency room visits for heart attacks turn out to be panic and anxiety, and you don't know, right? And uh, in, in the course of about four months, I lost about close to 30 pounds. All my clothes were baggy on me. I was just shriveled up to almost nothing. And it had to be probably the worst time that it could have come. My wife was pregnant with our son. And it was so bad that even when I was around others that I loved for the holidays, I remember our house had a basement. I would often sneak and go down the basement and just sit there in quiet because I couldn't be around a lot of people. I mean, it was very, very bad. And I actually was asking God to just take my life. I was like, you know what? My wife would be better off without me. I'm just losing my mind. I don't know what's wrong with me. I went to all these doctors and nobody could help me. But you know what? I became angry with God. I was a believer a few years. And listen, we, won't, we don't admit it in church, but we do. We're humans. We're sinful. Lord, I signed up to serve you. How could you let this happen to me? I became bitter. I became angry. I went through a very dark period in my life. And thank God for my wife. She really put up with me through all this. But the thing is, I could just picture God looking at me. And I said, yeah, I want to be used by you. When I went to All Air State Park, they had this whole community built around what they call bog iron. And you find this iron in its primitive state, and it's in, in the bog. It's slimy, and it has other things attached to it. And they, they refine it through this procedure, and they make these beautiful iron ingots out that they can sell to shipbuilding factories and things like that. I could just picture me saying, Lord, I, I want you to use me. And he kind of reaches his hand in the bog and picks up this slimy piece of bog iron that was me. And he said, you know, it has potential, but it needs to be cleaned up. I've got to scrape this stuff off of it. I've got to chisel this off of it. I've got to put it in the fire. And you know what? Then he was finally able to use me. But I tell you, looking back, all those points, compassion, 
If you were going through something, yeah, I could make the face and say, oh, I feel sorry for you. But I didn't really have all that much compassion. After I went through this, my compassion increased. It, it changed me. It built, it, 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 it dug out and, and scooped out a character in me that I never had before. And it was a great thing that God did. And then, of course, I had those from the encouragement ministry that would come to me and say, you must be in sin, you must not be praying enough, you know, are you sure you're saved? <laughs> and you'll always have that, right? Look at Job's three friends. But the point is, folks, we fall down as humans. It's nothing to be ashamed of. We fall down, right? We, we need to be picked back up again. Don't let somebody fool you and have the facade that they've got it all together and that they're impenetrable. And usually that person is afraid of what's inside of them, so they put up a shield. We are fallen beings. We fall down. It's okay to do that, right? And there is a stigma about it. So I would say that, you know, if you are suffering, because there is a stigma where people don't want to come forth about that. If you've ever suffered with that or are still suffering, I wouldn't mind having a discussion with you. Um, it's just the way it is, and I won't charge you a copay, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. You see the passion in Paul's words. You see that how he wears his heart on his sleeves and the love that comes out in his letters. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. So Paul talks about afflictions, but he doesn't stop there. He makes the decision to share his own affliction. Right? He, he takes it to another level. He goes from theory into pragmatism. He goes from the classroom out to the field. That's what he's doing here. Now, we can speculate. There were the riots in Ephesus. Um, a lot of the townspeople were stirred up against him. Uh, it could have been the illness that he suffered that was really bad. Uh, we know that in the book of Acts, as we read it, he almost died a few times. One time he was stoned to death and God brought him back to life. He probably thought, oh, now I'm finally free. And God, no, 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 go back into the ring. I'm not done with you, right? So we could look at all these things. But regardless, what we see and what the Corinthians see is a demonstrative faith. And that's what I was trying to share with you about the anxiety. It's a demonstrative faith. You look at me and say, wow, look at him. He's dressed well and he's happy and you know, he walks around with that thing in his ear. He seems like things are really great for Pastor Joe. But we all go through these problems. And really, what, the, what makes us who we are is how we deal with them and how we allow God to help shape us through them and the lessons that we learn through these processes. I want to read something from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. One of the greatest preachers of England. A lot of you shaking your heads. Here's a guy who they have schools on Spurgeon, books on Spurgeon, lectures from Spurgeon. Whole religions were made, are made around uh, C.H. Spurgeon. Let me read what he, what he said in his own words about himself in one of his sermons. He said, quote, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Have you ever heard that before from him? No? Shocking, isn't it? Why? He's a man. Paul was a man. And this is the cool thing. Anybody here could become a Paul or a Paulette, as I said before. 
God will use, and often he uses the ones that don't think that they're so great. He uses some of the weakest in society and he builds them up and he strengthens them so that when they come out refined from that fire, they can't say, oh, it was me. They have to point to the Lord. And that's the ones that the Lord loves to use. So if you're sitting here, I'm going to make this personal. If you're sitting here and you're thinking about your life and you're thinking you're being punished or you're going through something and you're having a hard time or you're struggling or there's an addiction and you just can't get past it, okay? God can use you. I think one of the biggest reasons why Christians sin and struggle is because they have not realized that God loves them as an individual. I am positively sure of that because that's the way I felt. We need to realize that God loves us, that you personally are important to him, that you, God, can use. And that's when things start to change. Sometimes we do things subconsciously that are self-destructive because we don't think we're worthy of love. God loves you and me individually, and that's important to know. But this is important, too, because this demonstrative faith that Paul has, that he shows them, and he puts his heart on his sleeve and says, of all the things we thought we were going to die, it was so bad. This also helps us not to make an assumption about anyone else's life. Sometimes we do. We make assumption about someone's life. We look at them, and just based on their appearance, there's a jealousy twinge that, that we find in our inner being. And we don't know why we, don't, we treat that person the way that we do. But sometimes it's jealousy. You think that they got it all together. Don't make an assumption about anyone else's life because it leads to division, jealousy, frustration with yourself, and bitterness. Verse 10, who is the God that Paul serves? Who is the one that takes care of him? Well, he says the one that's delivered us, past, past um, you know, tense, the one who does deliver, deliver us, present tense, and will deliver us, future tense. Which God is the one that's going to help me? The one that's outside the time domain. Of all the different gods that people serve, of course, they're false gods. The God of all eternity is, he can interject himself in and out of the time domain, past, present, and future. That's the God that I serve. Who is the God that delivers him? He says, the one that raises from the dead. The one that could take at the end of his life when a person expires, he can just pick him up and breathe life back into him, reverse the decaying process and the maggots and all the bacteria, and make him whole again. Boom, he raises him up. That's the God that I serve. That's the one. And that's why Paul continued to do what he did with the tough life that he had because he believed in the God that raises from the dead. Otherwise, I'm sure he would have quit a long time ago. Verse 11, how does this, how does this get done? He says to the Corinthians to pray. He prayed and he also asked for prayer for himself and his team. Intercessory prayer where I step in in front of between God and another person and say, God, will you please help this person who's struggling with a tumor or with cancer? That is intercessory prayer. You're interceding for someone else. And he says this. He talks about you also helping together in prayer. Now, that's a Greek word that's very interesting. It's, uh, see if I butcher this, it's sunuporgeo. Sunuporgeo, that's it. It takes a while to get these words together. And that Greek word is, is prof- uh, compromised as a composite of three different words with under and work and the picture here is that intercessory prayer there's a burden there's a trouble there's a problem and what it is is a picture of laborers that hunker down and get together arm in arm locked together under the burden and they're working that's that picture so when we get together as as the body of Christ and we pray, prayer is an excellent thing. It should be a staple of everyone's spiritual diet. When we get together and we pray, things are done. Mountains are moved. 
The Bible's very clear on that. Don't, it's funny, the, the expression is, well, all we can do is pray. Well, pray should be the first thing that we're doing. We're putting it at the last of the list. Why? Because we're so used to doing it in our own abilities that, well, there's nothing left to do. It's not working. We're going to try this prayer thing over here. No, it should be first. Prayer was to galvanize the Corinthians together with the rest of the body of Christ and bring them to maturity and cohesiveness. And that brings us to the second or the seventh point is that trials teach us to trust and rely upon God, and intercessory prayer is a big part of that. There's a saying, there's no atheist in foxholes. When we're in dire situations, we turn to God. And I, this is amazing. I know people who aren't believers, and when they're in a dire situation, they're like, oh, you got to pray for me, and they, they start praying. I'm like, you know, but then when the thing passes, they go back to what they were doing. You know, I used to do that before I was a believer. But when we're in a dire situation, we know that we need God. We're at the end of ourselves. There's nothing we can do at this point, right? This is amazing. Because if you look at our society, just let me throw something out at you. Any doctors or nurses in here? Doctors or nurses? <laughs> okay. Um, why do you think that a doctor and a surgeon's malpractice insurance is so high? Some of these specialists, they'll tell you. A third of my money goes to taxes, a third of it goes to me, and a third of it goes to malpractice insurance. Why? Because we rely on surgeons. Now listen, I've got nothing against surgeons. Surgeons have taken parts of me that didn't belong, and I got the scars to prove it. I love surgeons. But the point is that we rely so heavily on surgeons, OBGYNs, high malpractice. God forbid my baby comes out with one blemish, I'm going to sue the pants off that doctor. Because we put so much faith, think about that. We put so much faith into the medical community and we've kind of shifted it from the Lord, right? My 90-year-old my grandmother, she's going for a brain surgery. She better come out alive out of anesthesia or I'm going to sue that doctor. They're not God. God is God. In our society, we put a lot of faith in our medical community, in our financial institutions, in our technology. However, if you're a farmer... You have no choice but to trust God. There's either clouds overhead or there's not. There's either rain on your crops or there's not. And if there's no rain on your crops, look what's going on in California, in the Joaquin, I believe it's the Joaquin Valley. They cut off the water because of the Delta smelt. So the farmers had to rely on rain. And a lot of their crops are drying up. They've got to find work. Some of these farmers are on lines to get uh, free food from the government because they're starving, right? So... If you're a farmer, you either, there's some profession still, police officers, <laughs> you've got to trust God, right? He's the only one that can interject there and, and make a difference in your life. Verse 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with flesh, fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes the way his manner of speaking, you've got to read it a few times and maybe sometimes go into the original Greek and, and see what he's saying because it's just his style of speaking. I had a little trouble with this, but here's the context. This is a precursor to the Apostle Paul explaining now why he didn't make one of the trips to Corinth. All right, So one of the trips he didn't make, and 
There were troublemakers at the time that were making a big deal out of this. Um, and he says our boasting. Another way to look at that word, uh, take it back to the Greek, is uh, he's not bragging, but it's more of an objective or a confidence, right? And he speaks about their conduct, him and his team, their conduct in the world with simplicity, sincerity, and grace. And that's great, simplicity. You know, it, it, does, it does folks no good who come to church. It doesn't do them any good if a pastor is preaching over their heads to make himself look smart. These high-minded, theological, big words, right? Um, it needs to be simple. And the Apostle Paul was simple. He used simple illustrations so even those with the basis education could understand what he was talking about. Simplicity, sincerity. He was sincere. He wasn't trying to get something out of them. He wasn't doing it for a pretext. He wasn't doing it to elevate himself and, and you know, make himself grandiose in the world. It was with sincerity and also grace. And we should always season everything we do with grace. And verse 13, he says, basically, what we write is what we are. And I call this the WYSIWYG principle. Have you ever heard of WYSIWYG? What you see is what you get, WYSIWYG. And that's a good thing to remember. And that's what Paul and his team were. What you see is what you get. Hey, we're not Gnostic. We're not telling you um, we're going to teach you some really mysterious things and only until you get into our inner circle will we elucidate you. The Gnostics did that. He didn't speak in cryptic speak. He didn't say it's one thing, but then they had to read the fine print. What you see is what you get with the Apostle Paul. For any leader, consistency and transparency is important. Not an aura of hyper-spirituality or uh, those who put themselves in ivory towers, right? And for any believer, it's a good principle. You know, not just you're the pastor, but any believer. What, we, what someone sees about us is what they should get about us. Not that we put different masks on and facades depending on which group of people we go to, right? And verse 14, he was basically saying that, and he was very gracious because they gave him a real hard time, that the Corinthians were a blessing to Paul because he got to see the fruit of his labors and he was a, bliss, a blessing to them because of his teachings, right? It was a symbiotic relationship where two organisms mutually need each other for survival. And he says basically on the Lord Jesus, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day when the Lord calls us home, we'll all get together and there'll be a Bema seat, there'll be a judgment seat of Christ and uh, it'll be really a, a joyous celebration and we'll get to see the fruits of our labors. So really, we get to see some real, really neat stuff now, but in the end, when we stand before the Lord, it's all going to make sense, and we're going to see the ramifications indirectly of the things we've done while laboring in the fields uh, with him, right? Okay. And there's a, a purpose here, three purposes in any church, right? Any organization, any church that worship is, worships God, there's three purpose, purposes here. Number one is worship. Our first why do we come here? You know, a lot, we like the social, we like our friends, we like, you know, to see people we haven't seen all week, and that's great. But the first thing that we do when we come to church, it's for worshiping God, because he deserves to be worshiped. So we worship him. We bow ourselves down and we submit ourselves to him, and we show him how much we appreciate him. The second purpose for church is edification. Ephesians 4 tells us that. Edification, where we build up the body, where every believer over time is built up. And this is something that I want to throw out at you. We should all ask ourselves one question, one question. After every book that we complete, 1 Corinthians, what has God shown me about 1 Corinthians? How has my life changed? What is he showing me about my life after covering 1 Corinthians or Revelation 
or James. If we're not doing that, we're missing something because we need to be built up, we need to be edified, we need to grow, and we need to mature. And the third point, okay, is saving souls. Mature believers go out and beget sheep. We go out and we minister to people in our actions, in our words, and we help to bring more into salvation. And that's, the, that's it. All the fellowship and the social stuff is important, but it really is secondary, or, it, or this stuff is foundational to that, okay? Verse 15. And in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. And this is where Paul is answering the charges because he didn't make that trip. They um, accused him of yesing them. Saying yes, oh yeah, I'll be there, and then he wouldn't be there. Or saying yes, I'll be there, and maybe he got a better offer and went somewhere else, right? So of course this was a, a, a hubbub in, uh, Corinthian, in Corinth about Paul. Now, his reasons were, and we'll, we'll get into this too, was that the visit that he had with them was contentious. It was heated. He really had to discipline these people, these uh, churchgoers. Um, after that, he had sent that severe letter, and the letter was pretty terse. So Paul decided that if I go there again, it's just going to cause more problems. What I'll do is I'll send another letter, and I'll let the Lord deal with them. Right? So that was his reasoning, and it makes sense. Because the implication in the outright charge was that he was not a man of his word. All right? Now listen, I make decisions. And, um, you know, maybe somebody asked me, hey, can we do this or should we do that? And I'll say something. And then maybe uh, I didn't pray about it enough or um, as the Lord works on me over the maybe a week or a month, I may change my mind. But we should not use, and this is important too, we should not blame the Holy Spirit, although the Lord changed my mind, for being unreliable. And this brings us to another point, things that we can learn. Are we the type of person, right, whether we're at work do we have the reputation at work that people look at us as unreliable? Oh, yeah, yeah, they said they'll be here, but you know, you know Bob, he's not going to show up. Do we have that reputation amongst our family or our friends or even our church? You know, do we sign up for things? Do we say, I'm going to help? Do we say, I'm going to be a part of something and then just kind of, eh, they just don't do anything about it? Let me give you an object lesson. Any senior pastor, any teaching pastor, um, they get up in the morning on a Sunday. That's what they're supposed to do. That's their calling, to teach. And let's just say I get up at 10 o'clock, and I'm like, you know what? I don't feel good. I'm going to stay in bed. I don't call anybody. I don't say anything. 10.30 comes worship. Um, 10 of 11 is announcements. 11 o'clock, everybody's looking around. Well, what's happening? No, I just didn't feel like coming in. Now, obviously, in this position, because it's more high profile, you'd say, well, that's your responsibility. However, everything that we do in ministry or for the Lord, right, is important to God because we all work together and we're equal. What you're doing is you're elevating me higher than you, and you shouldn't be doing that. Everything that we do as the body of Christ together has a purpose and has an importance, okay? And sometimes we want to do a good job at work 
or we want to be reliable with our family, but the place that we should be most reliable with is the things of God. Well, that's volunteer time. Well, you know, I can kind of, I'll do that next week. We should be the most reliable when it comes with doing the things of God. So Paul was very important, very important that he said this because he did not want them to get the wrong impression of him. And this might have been the only time or that he did this, but some were making a bigger deal of it than they should have. Verse 18 through 20, he makes a broader argument with two points. And he speaks about, he, he brings God into this, he brings Jesus into this. And basically, number one, the common ground that they all shared was in Jesus Christ. So when you're having a disagreement with another believer, we, we want to have common ground. What is the common ground that we all share? It's Jesus Christ and God's word. So, you know, if there's an impasse that you're trying to bridge, use God's word. Use Jesus Christ as an example. The other thing that I think he was probably concerned about was if the false teachers could kill the messenger, which is him, they might be able to kill the message. And the message of the gospel was far more important than Paul's reputation, right? And another thing is that um, a type of argument they used back then was to argue from the greater to the lesser. Well, let's start with God and work our way down to me. God has all things under control. However it worked out, this is what God's plan was. Right? Verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a deposit. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Now that we have dominion, or not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, by faith you stand. And this is, this is one of the um, proof texts that we use for how we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a hard thing to understand, but when we come to the end of ourselves and we repent before God of our sins and come to the cross, you know, Jesus said in John chapter 3, the wind blows where it wishes, you don't really know where it's coming from or where it goes to, but you can see the leaves rustle. You can see the effects of the wind. So it is with the Holy Spirit. At some point in time, we become regenerate. Our spirit is regenerate. And the Holy Spirit, um, it, it becomes a part of our life. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, if you had an important government document, a scroll, they would roll it up. And they would take wax and drip it on the edges so you couldn't open up the document unless you broke the seal. And then the uh, authority, the power, the uh, governmental agent would take his signet ring, which had a special insignia, and put it into the wet, uh, melted wax. And what would happen is when that document was sent across land or sea, if anybody broke that seal, that could have been the penalty of death to them. That seal protected the document. So in a sense, the Holy Spirit protects us we, we, we should fear nothing, even death, because the Holy Spirit is always with us. No matter what happens, God has it under control, and he is that signet. He is that seal to us. So when you understand the um, allusions or the pictures in the, in, in the Roman world at the time, it really brings out the meaning uh, to a greater extent. And basically, he wanted to uh, prepare them and um, prevent them from further anguish. That's why he didn't come. Right? He didn't want it to look like he was on top of them all the time. Apostle, pastor, leader shouldn't be on top of everyone. There should be a, maybe a, a correction, a discipline, and then you let see what the Lord will do in their lives, not a lording over. Jesus said the Gentiles do that when he was speaking to his people. He said they lord over each other. They force them to do things. You know, the Caesars and the Herods lead by fear and intimidation. But when you lead, be a servant leader. Don't lord it over them. So that was important. 
Now, there are some type of uh, churches out there, believe it or not, and I don't want to you know, say the name or anything, but they'll tell you. They want to know what everybody makes. They'll tell you what to tithe. They'll tell you what type of car to drive. They'll tell you who you should marry and who you can't marry. That's not according to what Jesus says. So a lot of people get turned off by church and, and uh, you know, this church, that church. But you got to look at it and, and not let it be a reflection of God. If they're doing something that's not biblical, well, it's not God's fault. They're not representing him. So move on. You know what I'm saying? So lording over, it's not a good thing. Now, Paul let them go through their turmoil in the church and in their hearts. And he let them sit in it for a little while. He let them sit in it. He let them sit in their stink in their sin, in their rebellion. And he gave them what he needed to say. He sent the letter, and he just wanted to see who was going to stay and who wasn't going to stay. And that brings us to the eighth point. Trials separate a fair-weather Christian from a true believer, right? It's true. God wants to see, I mean, you know, and, and in this country, you could say anything. We have freedom of speech. You could do what you want. Nobody bothers you. I could say that I'm an elephant and nobody will bother me. Um, Shirley MacLaine said that she was God. Remember that? She screamed, I am God. Well, one day she's going to meet him and see that she's not God. But, you know, in, in America, it's very easy for us. There's not a whole lot of trials to see who is going to be separated, you know, the wheat from the chaff. And a lot of times, Jesus even said that when the harvest grows, the wheat and the weeds look very similar. It's not until harvest time where you're going to see, you know, the ones plucked out, the wheat, uh, the good ones, and then the, the weeds taken and burned, right? So the eighth point is trials are good because they separate fair-weather Christians from true believers. Who's going to stick around and who's going to run away? Who's going to say, you know what, I kind of went up front and, you know, I said that I, I believe in Jesus, but eh, this is too hard. I'm going to go back to my old life. It was a lot easier back then, right? And the last line here. He says, for by faith you stand. By faith you stand. Faith is going to get us through the hard times. As we look at these trials, as we look at each of the eight points, it's faith. We believe in God that our character will change. We believe in God that we'll be more compassionate. We believe in God that we will grow. So it's by faith that we stand. Faith, the second point, is going to help us to take that discipline and correction that's meted out in God's word. Hmm, I don't like the way this sounds. It is really convicting to the life that I'm leading, but you know what? By faith, I'm going to believe that what God put here is good for me. The third point, faith, again, is going to grow and mature us without someone lording over us. And faith tells us that whatever happens, that God has the situation under control. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Apostle Paul, that he, he wasn't disconnected from those he was writing to, that even today, 2,000 years later, we can understand what he's saying, that we can see the emotion and the... Uh...